Hey, I'm going to ask you if you would, uh, if you'd pray out loud to the Lord this simple prayer. Lord, speak to me. Would you pray that with me? Let's pray. Out loud to the Lord. Lord, speak to me. Amen. You, uh, you've may, you may have played the game, uh, Two Truths and a Lie. We played that game in the Christmas party here last Christmas. It was, it was a lot of fun. It was good for us. Rachel and I and Annie had just really kind of started coming to the church, and we got invited to the Christmas party. I hope you'll come this Christmas party. I bet it's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to need a new game after I use this illustration. So in, in the, we sat at these tables, and you get to tell two truths about yourself and one lie. So I was with a bunch of strangers, and, you know, you come up with a lie, and you come up with two truths. You don't think anybody's going to figure out. So I'll tell you mine. I said, so I've actually been in the West Wing of the White House, visited. I, uh, I was uh, on a golf course in Kiowa, and, and uh, on a par three, made a hole-in-one. And uh, I was acted in a movie scene with Halle Berry. And to my surprise, the people at my table figured out what my lie was. I don't know how. Didn't know it was that telling. Anyway, this morning we're going to look at rest through the lens of suffering. We're in a series on rest, Sabbath resting. And Scott assigned me, I don't know why, the Sabbath and suffering. Fun, fun. We're going to look at it. With one lie and two truths. I'm not going to make you guess what the lie is. You see, all of us, all of us lie to ourselves and to one another. We believe a common lie. Common lie that's in our culture. The common lie says that if you live a good life, you get a good life. And if you live wrong, you get a bad life. That's true in our culture. I mean, think about it in our culture. We, we say in our culture, in our broad culture, that if you live a good life you're going to get a good life. If you do something wrong, they say, oh, bad karma, right? Or good karma. Um, We say in our culture, Mother Earth, she's getting angry with us. We we say in our culture, hey, what goes around comes around. Now, what's interesting to me, this should be interesting to you, is that that in a secular, non-believing, they believe in an impersonal universe they personalize that, that somehow culture, somehow this mysterious thing out there can, can make a moral judgment. So if you do something wrong, this impersonal universe is going to morally make a judgment against you and get you. That, that's kind of fascinating. I'll let Bob figure that out. You can write on it or something in one of your books. But you know what? In the church... Oftentimes, we teach the same thing. We may not say it's an... In fact, we don't say it's an impersonal. It's personal. And many churches have taught that if you do what God tells you to do, if you follow the law, if you do the rules, if you live by... If you teach your kids, if whatever, you'll get a good life. God will bless your life. And if if you're not being blessed in your life, you must be doing something wrong. That's taught in the church. That's the way some of you were raised to believe. And it's a lie that God rewards good behavior and blesses you through a good life and prosperity and health and good kids and all the comforts that this culture provides you 
because of your obedience and your hard work. We've been lied to that God's, that, that suffering is a result of God's punishment on our lives. And there are scores of men and women who've abandoned the church and God and Christianity because they were told if they just lived a moral life, they made a bargain with God. And then suffering came into their world and they were They were so disillusioned, they left the church. They left God. They left it all behind. Some of you have allowed me over the course of this year or so to get to know some of your story, to hear some of the suffering and pain points in your past. Some of you may be suffering right now. Some of you might be in the midst of a crushing blow in life. Some of, some of you. There's coming a time when suffering is going to pin you to the floor and you will not know even how to get up because of the suffering in your life. There's probably no book in the Bible, maybe in all of world's literature, that has more to say about suffering than the book of Job. People, even that don't go to church, know about Job. Except the guy I was getting my hair cut one time and found out I was a preacher. I won't even go into that story. But anyway, he found out as a preacher, and so there was a long silence, period of silence, and finally he said, hey, that guy Job, he had a rough life, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, Job, he had a hard time. There's probably, probably no story in, in literature that really explains suffering to the degree that the book of Job does. Here was a man, you may know the story. Here was, this, here was this man. He had a huge business. He had employees. He was probably one of the, if not the richest one of the richest people in the world at the known time. He had seven sons and, and three daughters. Now, in our culture, that may not mean, that, that sounds like a curse. But in their culture, that, was, that meant you were very blessed. You were very wealthy in relationship. He had, he was a highly respected member of his community. He had he had a care for the poor. He had, a pro- he had a way in which his money was being used in a generous way. And as we get to see a man that God highlighted as one who was blameless and loved and who followed God with all of his heart. And God had declared him justified by his faith and his hope in the coming one. And in a short period of time, if you know the story, in a, short, in a very short period of time, Satan, with God's permission, destroyed his entire business, wiped him out. And in one instant, killed seven sons and three daughters. He found the rejection of a crushed wife and then his health. And he had to, he had to sit in isolation on the town's garbage heap, scraping the sores off of his body. One thing I've learned about suffering is that it can take your breath away and it can break a life. And here is a man who in one small instant life just was suffering came crashing down into his world and destroyed everything that was about his life. I mean, you get a taste of the suffering that that Job had when you read just the prologue to the book. And then as you're going through it and you hear the conversations and the anguish of this man's soul. You and I have known people who've endured some level of pain and suffering. You you yourself have endured some level of pain. 
And there's some horrible things that happen to people. And people that have suffered. And, and, and if you know some of these people, you've seen how suffering broke them. It just, it just broke them. And I've seen it break people in different levels. Some people, I say, have a crushed life. And I don't mean they had a crushing blow to life. I'm not minimizing at all the suffering that people go through. A friend of mine called once and said one of his friends, his teenage son, had died unexpectedly without any reason. Would you please call my friend? The man was crushed, and rightly so. I'm not talking about the crushing blow of a spouse who dies after a long marriage or a business that collapses and you lose the family fortune or the doctor who says, I'm afraid it's cancer. Those are crushing blows in life. I'm talking about the people who've remained in a crushed life. They're unable to function anymore. They're stuck in the crush of their pain, of their suffering. Some people who, who, when suffering came upon them, live a crusty life. They have a bitter view of the world and a bitter view of God. And they say, don't talk to me about God. I don't want anything to know. I don't even want to hear that name. You've, you may know some of those people. There's some who I call have a cursing life. I was a chaplain in a police department for six years. And... Uh, Every year, every annual, every year they did this annual thing for Mothers Against Drunk Driving. They had a little program and everything. And I, as a chaplain, was always invited to come and do the invocation, the opening prayer. And I remember in one of the, one of the meetings, one of the moms who got up and she spoke. There was always some moms, and they gave testimony. They talked about their family. And this woman got up, and she talked about her son, who had died five years before by a drunk driver. And with this deepest pathos in her voice, she said, and I'll... I will never forgive the man. She didn't use the word man. She used a more explosive term. I will never forgive that man who took my son's life. Ever. Now that is a painful suffering. A person who's going through life, who, who is suffering and induced this angry, cursing life. And then some people get crushed and get, get into suffering and they live a cynical life. I mean, it's all meaningless. There must not be a God. And if there is a God, he's a moral monster. It's just meaningless and they're just cynical about the way they risk, live the rest of their life. That's the way people respond to suffering, typically. Not the people just out, outside the church, folks. I've been in the church all of my life. Those are the responses of church people. We're not immune to suffering. We're not immune to these kinds of responses to what happens in life. To hear about the time a man heard his next-door neighbor's boy crying in the backyard. He looked over the fence and noticed a little 10-year-old boy filling a hole in it, tears just streaming down his face. His nose was running. He was really hurting. And the man thought to himself, I really shouldn't get involved in this. It's none of my business. But he felt so bad because the boy just seemed so crushed. He said, Timmy, is, is everything okay? Yeah, the boy replied, not even looking up. Well, what are, what are you doing? The boy said, well, my goldfish died. I'm just burying him. The man said, wow, it's an awfully big hole for just a little goldfish, don't you think? The boy patted down the last bit of dirt over the grave, looked up at the man, and replied, that's because he's inside your stupid cat. <laughs> laughter 
We needed a breath of fresh air in this suffering sermon. <laughs> suffering can break a life. But suffering can also make a life. You ever been around someone who's one of these rare, deeply rich human beings? I mean, they're just full of wisdom, full of love. They're full of forgiveness. Have a, a peaceful way about them. They're just rich. They're just rich in character, rich as a person. They're the kind of person you go, I want, you, I want to go to lunch with you. I want to, I want to sit and learn from you. I want to hear stories from you. I want, to, I want to know this person. You hear them pray and you go, wow, that's a person that knows God. I can guarantee you, when you've been around that kind of a compelling human being, they have suffered deeply in their life because suffering can make a life. We don't have to be left with the breaking of suffering. Suffering that comes into our world can actually make you. It can give you character. That's what suffering can do. It's one of those things that can take your breath away, yes. And when that person grasps for air, this kind of person, they breathe in Christ and his love and his grace. And how does that happen? I thought you might ask. So we're going to look at Job chapter 3. I'm going to read just a couple of verses towards the end of chapter 3 in the book of Job. We're going to turn to this man who becomes this, who is this man of character before his suffering and post his suffering. Listen to what he writes. Now, now, in chapter 3, Job asks the question that all people ask when they're going through suffering. There There are two primary questions. When you're suffering, two things quickly surface in your mind. One, why is this happening to me? Why am I suffering? Job does that in chapter 3. He, he's, he's suffered. We've had the prologue. He's, he's had seven days of silence. He's in grief. He's in sorrow. For again, he's lost his business. He's, his, sef, his ten children have died. Look, I know people who had one child die. The grief is horrendous. He had ten children die. Just like that. He has seven days of mourning. And then he speaks. And the first words, I'm not going to read them, the first words out of his mouth, as, as in chapter 3, are these, is this speech is saying to God, why... Why? It would, it would have been better if I'd never been born than to have to have this pain. You ever felt like that? Why? Why? It would have been better to have been, if I was going to be born, to have been stillborn. Ever had that kind of grief? And then in, then in verse 23, he says, Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing comes to me instead of food. My groans, they pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace. 
no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. It's interesting. Job is crying out, why did this happen? Why is this happening to me? And what's interesting about the book of Job is that we get to the end of the book of Job, and you know what? That question is never answered to Job. We know why, but Job never finds out. God never comes to the end and goes, okay, Job, now let me sit down and explain to you why I just put you through what you went through. God never does that. He never explains to Job why. But the book does tell us, and this passage does show us, something about suffering. First of all, I want you to know that suffering exposes what you're resting in. The motivational pull of your heart, what you're relying on in life, your comfort, that sense of of personal security and safety, that that place where you find approval in your life, that, that thing that you're looking for, whether it's the approval of somebody else or that that inward sense of approval, that, that self-justification, that the way that you handle life on the inner part of you. Suffering, when it comes into your life, will expose what it is that you're relying on. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, an ordained apostle, church planning statement, he wrote a letter to one of his key churches, and he talked about his own personal suffering. In verses 8 and 9, 2 Corinthians 1, he says, I don't want you, we don't want you folks to be uninformed about the troubles that we experienced in Asia. We were under great pressure. By the way, the word there means they were hemmed in. They were boxed in by the struggle, by the affliction that was upon them. We were under great pressure, totally beyond our ability to endure, so that we even despaired of life. We felt we had received the sentence of death. Have you been there? Have you suffered in a way in which you can identify with Paul's words? We, it was, it's, beyond, it's beyond our ability to even endure. I don't even know how I'm going to go forward tomorrow. I don't know how I'm going to put one foot. I don't even know what's going to. He says, we even despaired. We felt we'd received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. That we might learn to put our confidence in, our rest in God, and not on ourselves. Several, several, months, ago, several months ago, a woman emailed me, and she said she'd read my book, Vital Grace, the new one had just been published, and she said, I've decided to teach it in my town. And so she invited a bunch of people in her community, and they started meeting one of the office buildings nearby. And she invited a whole bunch of people, and people started coming. And so she sent me, she says, I'm working on some things that I got out of your book, but I, she created her own teaching stuff, which is fine, because there's not a teaching manual that goes with it. But she sent me, show the picture of the tree. So she sent me this picture that she, she had put together. And you'll see up there the surface idols and then the source. Don't look at the sources yet. Just look, at, just look at the tree and look at the, this is what she sent me. These were her surface idols. Now, Scott touched on this last week. So it's not new to you. It's not a new concept, unless you were asleep. But, but life idols, the things that we say are life idols, are those things that are typically good things in life that become the most important things. We build our life around them. Those are the things at the top. We build our life around some of those things. And, and they be, they're surface. We can see them. 
In our culture, money, sex, and fame are the large surface idols. And a lot of people in our culture, including many of us in this room, build our life around one of those things, money, sex, or or fame. We can see them. And they show up in different applications, as you can see on on her tree. But they're real. Do you recognize any of these in your life? Any of them? Yeah, now that's the thing. Anyway, one of the folks in her study started uh, coming because of a pain point in their life. And she emailed me and shared with me a story of this individual had come and had an aha moment. They told in there, they had little break, the group got so big, they have little great breakout groups. And this person said that as a child, they experienced a, a, a traumatic childhood. Something happened in their childhood. And the rest of, the, of their life, even as a Christian, this person said, I have tried to use others, my house, my marriage, my kids, my money, my church involvement as the way for me to find security in my life. People who've undergone a great deal of trauma, that becomes the thing that they look for in life. To make them whole, I've got to find security. And this person identified it. I even, I even prayed and asked God to give me those things to provide for me security. But never looked to God to give me security. Go deeper than the surface, you see. The security and the comfort and the approval, even that self-justifying approval. Suffering will expose the roots and the good work. There's a survey out from Lifeway on the modern-day idols. This is the reason I said I know that you have them. You can show that survey out there. Here's a survey link. This is uh, from Lifeway. They've polled churches and polled pastors. And, And... now, they've included the surface and the source idols together in this poll, but you can see that we in America are looking for comfort. Francis Schaeffer, a scholar and theologian from the early, back in the 70s, doesn't seem like that far long, that long ago, but it's a long time ago. He said, there's coming a time when the church, when the Christians, the thing that they will live for is personal peace and affluence. That's what they want. That's what they'll they'll live for. That's what that poll is telling us. We're there. We've made it. We've arrived. Can you see it in yourself? If you don't, let me tell you something. Suffering will come into your life and it'll expose that idolatry. It'll expose what you're truly working your life around, centering your life around. And to the degree you've centered your life around it, and that is lost. And you have no way to resolve it, you'll end up in a crushed life, a cynical life, a cursed life. But let me give you some of the good news. Suffering also, we learn from this, produces transformation. In fact, we know from the story of Job that God... God's allowance of his suffering was not due to some sin in Job's life, right? We get a behind-the-curtain scene 
that actually it was because of Job's righteousness that he suffered. You say, what? Yeah, Satan came to, to God. God allowed Satan into his presence in the heavenly realms. Kind of a weird scene. God says to Satan, where have you been? He says, oh, I'm on around the earth, looking. And God said, God says to Satan, hey, have you seen my servant, Scott? Job, have you seen him? He's a blameless, righteous man who is obeying my ways. He was blameless. Have you seen him? He fears me. He turns his life away from evil. He's, he's giving his money to, to the social causes of his day. He's helping the poor. He's helping the widows. He's giving, his, giving people jobs. He's, he lives by faith. He has a, a repentant heart towards me. He's obedient and following my ways. He's blameless. Not sinless. Not sinless. But he's blameless. There's a big difference, you know. There's a difference between being blameless and sinless. Sinless, there's no guilt. You've never done anything wrong. Blameless is they're not holding the sin against you. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not count his transgressions against him. He has transgressions, but God accounts him as blameless. He's not holding the blame over him. And God, out of his deep love for Job, continued to be at work in his life to transform him what he'd begun in him, so that Job would be renewed into what God had originally designed Job to be. And suffering was part of the process to transform him, to become the man that God originally designed him to be. And you know what? It's the same thing for you. Suffering produces transformation in your life to be the kind of human being that God originally designed you to be to be renewed into that person. If you've turned away from your self-saving strategies to make life work out for you, and you've relied on Christ's death and on his resurrection for your true life, Christ is your Savior, you've turned the corner with him, then God is transforming you. And God is using suffering to produce character, endurance, and hope. Rachel and I were talking about, my wife, we were talking about this sermon and stuff, and she used an example that I thought was great. She said, if you had a child, if you had a second grader, would you enroll your second grader into a school that said, we don't do tests here. Uh, We, in fact, we don't want to do anything in our school that causes your child any stress in their life or any struggle. We don't want to damage their self-esteem. So we don't do tests, and we don't give homework, and we don't require anything of them. There's, this is a free stress zone. Now, some of you students in high school go, ah, sign me up for that. But you as a parent would know that is not the school to send your child to. Right? Because the only way they learn is by testing, is by struggle, is by memory, is by lying on the floor as a second grader, trying to, re- trying to memorize the times table. I mean, it's hard, and it's... 
you get it. Later in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul continues in his letter to his friends, and he says, we are hard-pressed now on every side. So the first one is, I don't want you to be ignorant about the first time we came to Asia, when he first got there. Now he's telling them now. We are hard-pressed now on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because our light and momentary sufferings are decisively working its way down into us for a substantive, significant, eternal glory. In other words, suffering is doing something good in our life. And then he adds, but we don't look to what is seen, we look to what is unseen. It's producing something in us. Suffering is producing transformation. So, Job writes, the thing I feared the most has happened to me. I have no rest, only turmoil. Now, some have suggested as I was studying this that he was a very wealthy man and he feared losing it all. That's what he was afraid of. In other words, he counted all his chips and he had all his money in the bank and he used to be one of these people that, you know, rich people are, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to lose this all. Some said it was his children. He, didn't, he, always, he was always afraid that one of them would die. Some said it was his prestige or his position as a ruling member of society. But I don't think so. And when you read the book of Job, Job never complains about the loss of his kids. He never complains about the loss of his money. He says, at first blush, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. At the first blush, I came into the world with nothing, I'm going to lead with nothing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In chapter 31, verses 24 through 28, he talks about his wealth and he says, I didn't look to gold. To, that wasn't where my, what I relied on. You can go read it. Throughout the book, I believe and hear what he means is he feared that he would lose God's favor, that he'd lost God's presence, and he couldn't understand why God was seemed to be had, had abandoned him, had left him. He was crying throughout the book. He's crying to God, why? Why did you leave me? What have I done? Why have you abandoned me? I don't know why I lost your face. And in the midst of your suffering... We do too. When you're suffering, it's an easy, easy slip into God has left me all alone. When you see one of your closest friends, one of your children suffering, you say, God, why? Why you left them? Why won't you rescue them? Why won't you come in and do something? You've abandoned us. Now, we know God had not abandoned him. God was very close and watching over him, but it felt like it to him. And Paul said he had the sentence of, of death over him. And because he believed God had abandoned him, he had no rest. That's what he's saying. What I feared has come to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest. But he wasn't abandoned by God because... There's a true Job. Jesus Christ, who had done no wrong, he was sinless, not blameless, sinless. He came and suffered all things. 
He lost the ultimate comfort of the throne of the universe. He lost the security as king over all things. He gave up the approval of his father because on the cross he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't just experience the sentence of death emotionally. He died for you. He experienced the ultimate abandonment. He was perfect, but he didn't get a good life. He suffered death. By his cosmic restlessness, he's made the way for rest. He declared on the cross, it is finished. It's all satisfied. It is completed. It is the, it is the, it is the ultimate voice of the end of creation and God rested it was completed it was whole Jesus on the cross said we've now come to the completion the resting point of your suffering and I know it is a fight of faith to believe that in the middle of the suffering yours or someone you love that God's love remains. He has not abandoned you. How do we know that? Because on the cross, Jesus was abandoned by the Father, so we would never be abandoned by the Father. Because he loved his Father and he loved you, he went willingly to that cross. He who spared, Paul writes, did not his own son for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. He not only felt the sentence of death, he died. So resting in, this, in, in grace is not passivity. It's actually a response to what God's doing. Re- rest is now a response to the way God is actively working in us. And what does it look like? Here comes a practical test. It, it, it looks like love, a dual love, a love for God and a love for others. If the love-infused grace of Jesus doesn't take your breath away, suffering surely will. It will sap the breath out of you. But the love-infused grace of Jesus should take our breath away. All this talk about God's grace in our life, all this gospel teaching, getting down into our hearts, all the talk about how Jesus is changing me and God's good all the time, and all the time God's good, all that happy talk, it's all talk, and it's, but it's all crushed into this tight crucible. How do I respond to suffering when it comes into my life? That becomes the test. And it's in love. It's through love. If you're taking notes, you want to know, okay, what I would do with this? And if you're not taking notes, you're going to come back and look at this later and write notes. I'm going to give you some things that you can do. Because something about suffering, now listen, when you're suffering, it, you can't cram. When, when suffering comes, it's too late. It's too late. You can't cram for it. You've got to prepare ahead of time. And I like that commercial on TV where the guy gets, gets into the gym and he gets on the scales, and he runs once around the gym, gets back on the scale, and thinks, yeah, it should be. It doesn't work that way. You can only prepare ahead of time. 
you got to remind yourself of God's love. you got to have eyes of faith in what is unseen. Of course you can't see what God's doing. But he loves you deeper than the pain that you're suffering. You have to refuse to believe the lie, to rely on your own self. You have to rely on the love of God. One of the, way, one of the, ways, one of the ways that you rely on God in the midst of it is to remember that he is your maker. He is your creator. He, he's, and, and he knows, the Bible says, that we are like, just like dust. He, he knows that we're frail people. And he's our maker. We've got to recalibrate, and that happens through worship, where we treasure Christ more than the comforts of our wealth or our health provides us. And then the book of Job ends in 42 with God in this conversation with him. And then, and then the book ends. And Job had four friends at the beginning of the book, but at the end of the book, he's got different, well, I'm going to call them different friends, but he's got friends that actually are a supportive community to him. His first friends were not very, very helpful. But the book ends with his family and his friends coming to him, and it says, and they gave him gold and they gave him silver. We need to find a community that helps and doesn't hurt. And then lastly, after over 40 years of playing golf, I've never shot a hole in one, ever, in my entire life. Let's pray. Father, some of us in this room right now are experiencing a deep sense of suffering. Maybe not as bad as Job's life, but to us, to where we are in our journey, it hurts. Come and rescue. Make yourself known. Be real. For another in this room... They're looking back on their life and they're realizing that you've done an amazing, an amazing job at renewing. They can look back on the painful times, the crushing blows of their life, the divorces, the moments that they wanted to kill themselves, the death of a child, and they can see what you've done. And we rejoice and they rejoice. Lord, there's another. The crushing blow is about to happen. May we be a community of family and friends that can come alongside. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.